For much of his life, the Roman philosopher Boethius was exceptionally fortunate. He was born into a respected family, he received a great education, he obtained powerful political positions, and he had a beautiful family with two wonderful children. But towards the end of his life, his good luck ran out. He was wrongly accused of treason, thrown in jail, and sentenced to death. While he was awaiting execution, he began to reflect on his life and how luck had played such an important part. He wrote his thoughts in what would later become one of the most influential philosophical works in history, The Consolation of Philosophy. The Consolation of Philosophy, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, is a vastly important text. So you, you can't but take notice of it. Every aspect of, of philosophy in the Middle Ages is influenced by Boethius. My name's John Marenbron. Um, I work on philosophy in what I call the Long Middle Ages, which um, goes from about 200, 200 AD to as late as 1700. I do this at Trinity College in the University of Cambridge. As you can imagine, Boethius' imprisonment and death sentence led him to ask hard questions about existence. What did it mean that he was so fortunate early on and now so unfortunate? After these ups and downs, what really mattered in his life? After all, we all, in the end, have to face death. Um, so, you know, the, the, the question is, what's truly valuable in the face of death, whether it's coming prematurely and terribly as for Boethius or even in the ordinary course of events as it is for all of us? So it, it, it's posing a very strong question, or sort of, if you like, the central philosophical question. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor John Marenbon to discuss Boethius's The Consolation of Philosophy. In the history of philosophy, Boethius is often seen as a bridge figure between classical and medieval philosophy. He sits right on the edge of the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Middle Ages. People talk about the fall of Rome and you know, this, this date 476, but in fact, the, the fall of Rome was a much more gradual thing. And in some ways, you might even want to say that Rome never really fell. By the third century AD, the Roman Empire ruled over the entire Mediterranean region. It stretched from Morocco, Spain and England in the west to Turkey and Armenia in the east. The empire was so big that it was logistically hard to govern and it began to divide into the Eastern Roman Empire and Western Roman Empire. By the fourth century AD, Germanic tribes were invading and taking control of many areas of the Western Roman Empire. Rome was sacked several times, but while the Roman Empire was being politically and militarily overtaken, its culture wasn't. You know, to some extent, they get Romanized a bit, but quite a lot of Roman institutions start to, to fail. But Latin remains as the language of the church and, and Christianity is, is, is preached and all these various barbarians get converted to Christianity. So you know, to some extent, you have the, the church with, a, the, with, with its center in Rome um, you know, taking the place of the, of, of the Roman Empire. In 476, the Roman Empire lost its last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus. He was deposed by a Goth military leader named Odoacer, who was deposed and murdered by another Goth named Theodoric. Boethius was born one year after Theodoric took over the Roman Empire. Boethius himself, and it, it, something very important about him, was, was born 
to the very highest, um, the very highest rank of Roman society. He was born into the prestigious Anici family. Boethius's grandfather was a Roman senator and his father was a consul. Every year, two consuls were elected to serve a one-year term. They were in charge of foreign affairs, the army, and the senate. Boethius's parents both died when he was young and he was left an orphan. But that was, in some ways, a fortunate turn of events. He was orphaned and he was, he was adopted by somebody who was even more, even grander than his parents. A Roman aristocrat named Memmius Symmachus adopted young Boethius and instilled in him a love of philosophy and literature. During the time of the late Roman Empire, most of the great philosophical works came from classical Greece. If you wanted to learn philosophy, you had to learn Greek. But that changed as the Goths took over the Western Roman Empire. Knowledge of Greek rapidly declined, so people were um, left to, to use Latin sources or um, a few works of Greek which had been translated into Latin, and that, that makes a big difference. But Boethius was lucky. He had a very traditional education um, in which he learned Greek absolutely fluently. In the past, people thought that he'd traveled to Greek-speaking countries. That, that seems unlikely, but he, it, it was as if he'd done so. This was thanks in large part to his adoptive father, Memmius Symmachus, who was fluent in Greek. And he didn't have to bother to, to work for a living. Um, so he was able to devote himself um, for most of his life to this to a plan of, of study and, and, and writing. And he decided to make himself, perhaps he was modeling himself on, on, on Cicero, but make himself into a sort of Latin figure, writing in Latin, but who would make Greek learning available. Boethius began his literary career by writing about Greek music, math, and then later logic. His writings helped preserve classical Greek learning into the Middle Ages. He translated almost all of Aristotle's logic into Latin, um, and he provided commentaries on some of these works and, and textbooks. Um, these works weren't highly original, um, but that wasn't the point. P people working in this tradition didn't try to be. He, he was very much like his um, uh, Greek contemporaries um, at the, the so-called Platonic schools of Athens and Alexandria, who was producing these, these commentaries, um, bringing together a lot of the discussion from previous centuries. Besides his writing career, Boethius also got married, had two children, and was elected to various public positions, including senator and consul. And then everything changed when, um, in the early 520s, um, Theodoric, so the, the, the Ostrogothic ruler, um, asked him to be his prime minister. The technical title was Master of the Offices, but it would be Theodoric's most important official. He took on this job and immediately got into trouble. It turned out that Theodoric's court was quite corrupt, and Boethius wanted to expose that corruption. The details aren't exactly clear, but basically, Theodoric was paranoid that Boethius was plotting against him and wrongly accused him of doing so. As a result of all these things, Boethius found himself, so suddenly, from being somebody who lived all his life um, in, in, in luxury with everything that he wanted, and had up until then been... Um, perhaps the most important person in the country, except for the ruler, suddenly he's thrown into prison, um, accused of treason, um, and facing a death sentence. And that's the setting for 
uh, his most famous work, The Constellation of Philosophy. Boethius wrote The Constellation of Philosophy while he was imprisoned, waiting to be executed. The text is both fictional and autobiographical, and alternates between prose and poetry. Boethius sets the story in the cell where he is imprisoned and writes himself in as one of the main characters. You have the character Boethius, who, who, and he depicts himself in his cell lamenting. Um, and what appears to him but a, a, a woman, um, a woman we've told who, who um, suddenly sometimes appears the ordinary height of a woman, some, suddenly she, she's as, as high as the sky, so sort of strange. Um, and of course, she's not a real woman. She, she's called philosophy, and she's a personification of, of philosophy. You might say the, whole, the tradition of philosophy that Boethius had, had studied all his life. Lady Philosophy comes to the fictional Boethius' cell and finds him very depressed about his fate. Her immediate reaction is not to say, um, oh, no, how terrible things are, I'm very sorry for you, you have all my sympathy. Not, absolutely not. She gets rid of the, the poetic muses um, who'd be helping him, Boethius, in his, in his song of lament. Um, and her attitude is, what, what is why, why are you upset? I mean, what, what is there to be worried about? Um, and, well, he, he takes the chance to tell his story and how unjust it is. And he said to her, he says to her rather sort of acidly, you know, is, is this my library with um, uh, shelves made of ivory and the volumes in it? Um, it's obviously sitting in some horrible prison cell. Um, and she has a very good reply to that. She says, I'm, I'm not interested in in the library and in, 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 in the books there. What I'm interested in is the contents of the, book, the books, the ideas, the doctrines, my teaching. Um, and her view is that Boethius has forgotten what he learned. Um, if Boethius um, can recall the philosophy which he's learned, um, then he will be consoled. Um, and the, the book's called the, the Consolation of Philosophy. And one has to bear in mind that the consolation in the ancient tradition was never um, you know, sort of touchy-feely, I'm very so sorry for you. It was, it was telling, it was reasoning with you to show you that you had nothing to be upset about, um, that old age or sickness or the death of a loved one, all, all, all these things were not, if you had the proper attitude to them, anything to be concerned about. And so, so th this, this is what philosophy is trying to do under a, a, a pretty extreme situation um, of, of somebody suddenly stripped of, of everything um, and, and facing a, a rather gruesome execution. What are the main themes that, that they're exploring together? Philosophy thinks that um, Boethius um, has forgotten what he's, he's learned. Um, and, and she says the reason for this is the shock, the, sh the, 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 the terrible shock of his fall, uh, the pending death sentence has um, put him, has put all this out of his mind. He's a sick person. Um, and so what she has to do is, is to um, sort of operate a cure. She pictures herself as a sort of doctor who will start off with, with, with lighter remedies and work to, to more serious ones. The light remedies are arguments to say, well, you know, look, you're complaining about fortune um, because you've fallen for fortune. But the point is, fortune owes you nothing. It's the very character of fortune um, for people to rise and people to fall. Um, you, you, you didn't deserve your high position, so you can't complain now that you've fallen from it. And that, that's just what fortune's like. Lady Fortune was the personification of luck. 
She was a Roman goddess, often depicted with a cornucopia in one hand and a tiller in the other. In medieval times, she was usually shown standing next to a large vertical wheel that she was constantly spinning. Everyone had a place on this wheel, regardless of class or social standing, because the fluctuation of luck and fortune impacts everyone. If you were spinning towards the top of the wheel, then you could enjoy all the good things fortune brought you. But if you were spinning towards the bottom of the wheel, things were probably going bad for you. Or at the very least, fortune wasn't granting you her goods. And the goods of fortune are most of the things that, 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 that many people value. So their um, power and wealth and sensual pleasure. Everyone was constantly spinning on this wheel. From the top, where the goods were, to the bottom, and back again. The idea is that the goods fortune provides and takes back are not in your control. There is nothing you can do to guarantee them. So while these goods can provide temporary happiness, you can't depend on them to bring you lasting satisfaction. Lady Philosophy goes on to show Boethius how the things people usually strive for in pursuit of happiness often end in unhappiness. The most common are wealth, rank, sovereignty, glory, and pleasure. In these things, people are seeking contentment, power, reverence, renown, or joy. They assume that once they achieve these things, they will be truly happy. The problem is that true happiness includes all of these goods together. Pursuing each of these things individually breaks them up and doesn't lead one to true happiness. Therefore, she says, true happiness cannot be found in these perishable things. True happiness can only exist in God, the ultimate good. And then, rather in line with that, um, philosophy develops um, a view, a very demanding view, um, about our attitude to, um, to punishment and reward. So one of Boethius, the, the prisoner's complaints um, at the beginning, had been that um, there's, there's no reward for being good. Um, in the world, the wicked prosper and the good suffer. And he's an example of that. Philosophy develops the idea that actually um, it's not true that the good suffer at all or that the wicked prosper because um, just by being good, by being virtuous, you're prospering because that's true prosperity. And by being wicked, you're not. In other words, wickedness pursues those temporary goods and virtue pursues the highest good. By pursuing temporary goods, you're never truly happy. So by being wicked, you suffer. Lady Philosophy goes on to say that if you are truly good, nothing can be done to you that would ruin your relationship with God. She tells Boethius that it doesn't matter that he is in prison or on death row. These things can't get in the way of his relationship with God. Philosophy puts that forward, but what's very striking is that then Boethius, the, the, the character, is allowed one of his few interventions in which he really challenges philosophy and says, you know, well, in spite of all that, um, how, how can you say um, that somebody in my position um, is, is, is really as well off as somebody who is enjoying prosperity with his family and so and so and looking forward to a, a, a long old age? At that stage, she talks about divine providence um, and the idea that, in fact, there is some plan behind all these things now that can be... Sometimes, sometimes people are being tested to see, um, you know, see, see what they can they can withstand, and their their virtue is being strengthened, and so on. But there is so the, the, there is some reason behind um, 
what what happens to to different people. It's not it's not something which can be um, the way things work out is not something being being which can be explained just in terms of virtue and good in itself. The text goes on to discuss several other philosophical ideas, such as free will and fate in the eyes of God. It ends with philosophy saying that we must always strive towards virtue. There are many things we don't understand about God because God is eternal and we are not, but he is always watching. Boethius finished the Consolation of Philosophy in 524, when he was 44 years old. Later that year, he was executed. Little is known about the text's history in the centuries following Boethius' death, but by the 11th century, it had become part of the European literary canon. Until the end of the 12th century, it was one of the books of the, of the school curriculum. Um, so in, in the various schools, which would have been monastic schools in the 9th and 10th and 11th centuries. And then in the 12th century, you have a wider sorts of schools, cathedral schools, and you have a big uh, explosion of, of, of schools and teachers in Paris uh, at the time. Um, and one thing they're very interested in is logic, which they're studying in especially Boethius' translations using his textbooks, but another thing they're interested in is the constellation of philosophy. So what, what's at stake um, in the question of, is this the last classical philosopher versus the first medieval philosopher? Well, I mean, why, why is he taken up so much um, in, in the Middle Ages? Um, it, it's partly that until the wave of, of Aristotelian translations, which come to be read and, and studied really only in the 13th century, um, there was a very limited access to ancient philosophy, um, a, a, apart from logic. Um, it was, you had a, there was a partial translation of Plato's Timaeus. There were a few other works by, by Latin philosophers like Seneca and so on. Um, but, but Boethius's consolation, in which he, and which has an element of being an introduction to philosophy, because what he's doing is, is you know, showing you how on a philosophical view, or philosophy is trying to say how on a philosophical view, Boethius should be consoled. He shouldn't, he shouldn't mind the position that he's in. Um, th you know, that was a precious source to them for a ancient philosophy. They didn't, they didn't have mu much else. I think it's partly that. It's partly that it's a very, as a work, um, introducing a lot of interesting philosophical themes and in the end going into this very complex business of um, divine prescience and freedom. But it, it's remarkably sort of well-written and, and attractive to read. And it, so um, and people throughout the Middle Ages were very keen on classical Latinity, classical culture. And th this was, you know, this, this gave them that, uh, along with a lot of interesting things to, to discuss. Um, and from the 13th century onwards, it gets translated into uh, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, almost every language, e e even in fact into Hebrew. And it's for almost all the great poets of the Middle Ages, uh, it's a key text. You know, strikingly too, Jean, Jean de Main, um, who, who wrote um, the well, so-called continuation of the Roman de la Rose, so mo most of it, which is, you know, pr probably the most important piece of, of old French literature, um, also translated the Constellation of Philosophy. And there's a lot of the Constellation of Philosophy in the Roman de la Rose. Chaucer, who 
uh, I think everybody's heard of, but the, the rate of the English medieval poet, he translated the constellation of philosophy into, into English. Maybe we could go into when does it start to wane and sort of its life, you know, in modern times. But this might have been quite a deep philosopher in the way in which he could bring various things together and use literary form with his philosophy. Boethius continues to be studied quite a lot in, in the Renaissance and even the, even the 17th century. He seems to have, um, it disappeared very quickly as, a, a big, as you know, one of the authors you really study. After then, with sort of humanism and the type of way in which people learned Latin, um, in the sort of 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, with a concentration on correct Latinity, classical Latinity. Um, although Boethius is a very, I mean, he's a highly educated writer and writing very, very correct Latin, um, it's people's tastes were formed to, to want to write, to, to want to look at authors you know, writing around the year zero, if you like. I mean, Cicero, Virgil. So, so Boethius just seems to be too late for, you know, there must be something a bit, a bit decadent about him or too flowery or whatever. So I think that that's one of the things which would put him out of mind. No, despite all that, I, do, I think Boethius is not as if he's not somebody in, in, in the curriculum for studying medieval philosophy. People, people do realize his importance um, and, 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 and do study him. Um, I think perhaps sometimes they don't realize his full sophistication um, because He's somebody also studied by people doing literature. So they study him in one way, and people doing philosophy are studying in the in another way. Um, and it's it's more rare that the two sides get put together. And I think you need to put them together to to realize you know, fully what an interesting author he is. So maybe bring us to today. What where can we recognize his lingering influence? As I say, two things that on the one hand, even if you even if you have a fairly simple reading of the constellation of philosophy. Um, it, it's one of the few works which managed to integrate um, argument, a dramatic uh, situation, a, a very beautiful way of expression um, in, in a very, very satisfactory way. Um, Plato, of course, manages to do that, um, a few other authors. And, and so in that sense, um, and I think it should always remain um, a classic of philosophy. Um, but I think there's another slightly more demanding way um, in which it can be read, which is, can you face death um, without religion? Um, which is what philosophy, in a way, is, is, is doing and tries to show, yes, you can. Um, but Boethius himself may not really be sure about that. But I think this, this question, do we have just through ourselves and through, our, through, through the resources of philosophy, which in the end is of human reason, um, do we have the resources to face death and especially this, this sort of, well, suddenly impending and, 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 and dreadful death that Boethius, the, the character, was facing? Um, and I think whichever answer people are inclined to give, reading Boethius, but trying to think about it in its context and what, Bo what Boethius, the author, might have been saying um, in a very different context from ours, but one in, in which, because of the mixture in him of the sort of classical culture and Christian culture was, was, was very sharp, um, 
that, 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 that's, that's a point I think that we can reflect on, um, and which is more, if you like, much more contemporary um, than the point that you get just from a, a very simple reading of the work. The consolation of philosophy reminds us that wealth, status, and sensual pleasures can't on their own bring us true happiness. And besides, we often have very little control over those things anyway. They belong to fortune, and she grants them and withholds them whenever she wants. Instead, real and lasting joy comes from within, through the cultivation of virtue. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Ferron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.